Welcome to our first episode of Repat Repat. We're really excited to have you and can't wait for you to listen to today's conversation. What a crazy year! We came up with the idea and started recording this podcast in January, back when we had so many projects and so many dreams. Then 2020 hit. But we still felt that this was super relevant. We all have had so much more time to stop and reflect about the event of the world and how they affect Black people, Africans, the diaspora, and just who we are. And to start with that last topic, we wanted to share with you our conversation with our dear friend Alex. We met Alex in our first year as repatriates in Kenya, and we have always admired about how she thinks and reflects about her identity. In this episode, Alex opens up about her background, the role that her African heritage played in her upbringing, her transition to living in Kenya, and so much more. This episode was recorded in February 2020 in Nairobi. Okay. Is it recording now? Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Good evening, guys. Good evening. How's it going? Hi. Good. I'm here tonight with Alex, our first guest on Repat Repat. Awesome. So thanks for coming, Alex. So happy to be here. When did we meet the first time? Do you remember? <laughs> I think we have different stories Whoa. about when we met. So I'm going to punt to when I met Emmy, yeah. which was through our mutual friend Isaac. And when did you meet Emmy? Emmy, I need you to answer this question. I'm I nervous. actually have no idea. I think we, we definitely met through Jen. Through Jen, friend. my agent. But I, I think it was, must have been one of these parties somewhere around. Yeah, I do remember Cece Jen Ching that she spoke very highly of her oh, friend Emmy. Yeah. Yes, and so when we eventually met, it was a good time. Yeah. yeah. So you had been here for a bit longer than both Emmy and I. When did you move to Nairobi? Were you somewhere else on the continent before? Yeah. So I moved to Nairobi in August 2018, mm-hmm. which feels just yesterday, but also a zillion years ago. And I was not on the continent before, or immediately before. I was living in the Bay Area in San Francisco for mm-hmm. about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's rewind much, much more than that. Reverse. Uh, yeah. Where were you born? What's your background? Mm-hmm. So I was born in a very small town in Pennsylvania called Lancaster. Very famous for the Amish. I don't know if anyone has heard of it. But I grew up for my first four years of life in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa, and then for five years after that in Congo, Brazzaville. Mm-hmm. I have three brothers. We were all raised abroad for the first years of our life, but my mom had us in the U.S. So I was born in the U.S., but grew up on the continent. Yeah. And what is your connection to the continent? 
That is a great question. Well, there's a lot of existential stuff in there, <laughs> but tangibly speaking, my father is Cameroonian, so yeah. West African. Yeah. Okay. So you moved, I mean, you grew up sort of in the continent, and then if I recall right, you have a, a UN background. When you moved to the US when you were younger, yeah. um, do you remember that or was that just sort of a quick blink and kind of went on? With your- yeah, I mean, I definitely remember it. I have two older brothers who remember it with much more color, I'm sure. Yeah, so it's a funny story. My family, my dad worked for the UN, he said, and there was a coup d'etat, which was the start of the Civil War in Congo Brazzaville, which was the reason why we left. So we weren't expecting to leave. I think it was like funny not funny, but in retrospect, trigger point for my mom. I'm good on raising my kids abroad, and so we left, we were lifted out, and moved to the US, and the place my mom knew the best was her hometown, which is a small, small, really homogenous, kind of blue blood, really conservative town in Pennsylvania. And then, yeah, that was the second half of my formative experience as a kid, and obviously, crazy juxtaposition between growing up on the continent and then moving back to the U.S., moving to the U.S. Yeah, one thing I remember is that my brothers and I, we gained a lot of weight really fast. (laughs) So excited by fast food. For whatever reason, that's the thing that sticks in my memory outside of some more traumatic memories of being evacuated from the Congo, which is intense for my family. Did you have any teasers or feelings about the your dad side, the kind of African side that you had? Did yeah. you go back at all? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think I mentioned this to Emmy off off the podcast, but my dad continued to work abroad for much of my childhood until I was about 16 years old when he retired from the UN. So my mom raised my brothers and I almost as a single mother. My dad would come back every two-ish months to the US in between work. And so in so many ways, it just was very disconnected from my African heritage and my identity as I understood it from that side of my genesis. And that would crop up in funny ways. <laughs> For example, my mom and I, the number of times we would just fall into crying slash fighting fits when she was trying to do my hair. <laughs> She'd be like, I don't know how to do your hair. And I'd be like, you suck. No one can help me. That type of growing into a woman, not necessarily understanding that side of my heritage and my mom being Caucasian and in some ways not being able to relate to some of the experiences I was having. Yeah, that cropped up here and there. But my identity, I'd say, from the time I moved from the Congo until I probably around the time I went to college was very much isolated from my African heritage. But then, how did you feel? Did you feel biracial? Did you feel white? Because you were in an environment where your mom was sort of in charge and just sharing whatever insights she had. Did you feel a bit African? Did you feel American? Yeah. Uh, I feel there were just so so many things that could have happened. And it's interesting too. Yeah. Yeah, I'll try to articulate it. I mean, I, def- I definitely felt biracial, and that was, I think, just tangibly looking in the mirror slash spending time in spaces where there weren't other people that looked at me. I understood that about myself. I'd say culturally, I definitely didn't feel African, nor did I have any access points to understanding African culture in the middle of Pennsylvania. And I, I felt, I would say, yeah, I felt very white. I'm not even sure what that means, technically, but I was raised by my mother, who's Caucasian. Most of my friends and peers were not people of color, and... The reality, which I psychoanalyzed myself in retrospect, is that I, it was of, to my benefit to pass as white culturally. Right? And I'm sure, I mean, <laughs> this might resonate with you in some ways too, but my siblings and I, 
we got a lot of, a lot of affirmation from passing as white culturally. And you can't see me, but I'm grimacing a bit because it's a hard thing to articulate. Problematic in so many ways, but at the time was kind of just a survival mechanism to learn how to code shift and just be easy, be easy <laughs> in those contexts that we were placed in as kids that were growing and evolving into ourselves. And with your dad, a little feeling of Africa more or less, did you feel distant or did you directly connect with them? Yeah. That- I think I always had a sense of what he was doing through work, and that was very cool. But he's quite a private, he's a private man, mm-hmm. and I don't think it was part of his brief as a father to indoctrinate in us Cameroonian culture. Mm-hmm. And so that was quite absent, I think, until I reached an age threshold where I was actually, I'm interested in learning about this, and what, what does it look for us to have conversations about your childhood, or what it feels like when you go back, or to actually go back with you to Douala, to Bangu, to understand what your community looks now, and how you remember growing up there. But that probably wasn't until I was about 18 or 19 yeah. that we started having those discussions. Uh, yeah. And what was the trigger to those conversations? Yeah, I mean, for me, and I referenced this earlier, is just being dropped into a totally different context, which for me was university, which I, I went to right after high school. And I went to school in California, which just worlds apart from small town Pennsylvania. and. I was in a context where I was just surrounded by so many different types of people, ethnically, socioeconomic status, just lived experiences before they came into that container. And I reference this because it was the first time that I, I think, was really confronted with a choice of how how do I identify? (laughs) Imposter syndrome was huge for me. I think I, I, I always felt just wasn't enough of of either. And. Specifically, and a lot of schools have this, we have a black student union. <laughs> then we also have the Center for African Studies. <laughs> and I was like, I do not fit in the black student union. I have no lived experiences in the U.S. that that help me resonate more deeply with people who are historically and culturally black American. But then also, I'm sitting on a table with <laughs> kids at the Center for African Studies, and they're like, yeah, I moved here from Ghana. That's why I grew up my whole life. And I don't literally know how to speak any language associated with my West African heritage. I mean, a bit of French, but... And so I just always found myself, I don't know, maybe kind of similar to you, I mean, feeling ashamed, but it kind of in a different way. So I feel ashamed because I feel like I'm not enough in either of these orbits. And that experience, I think, really pushed me to start thinking about how much I didn't know about my, Af- about my African heritage and what I was curious to understand and what emotions were associated with that and why. What are some of the things that really started drawing you back? What are the things that you started doing to start exploring and what did you learn worked and work? And when you came out of university, what? how were you different than when you came in? Mm, yeah, I'll start in like reverse order. I think I just was really naive and not even in a self-deprecating way, just I hadn't been exposed to a lot of the things that I was privy to when I went to university. I think existentially I looked at the world with a lot of black and whiteness lens-wise. Literally. Literally and figuratively. And so it was just such a cool experience for me to be exposed to a lot of different ways of thinking and understanding identity and I'm, I'm culturally quite American, but I think one thing Americans don't do well is give ourselves space for fluidity, whether that's your identity more broadly, or sexuality, or your passions or interests. It's a lot of where do you fit and why and stay there. Um, And so it was cool. I met a lot of people at university that helped me understand how important it is to think about identity in a fluid way. And I think that gave me more breathing room 
as I started to think about what am I or how do I want to be in the world and how do I want people to perceive me and what of that don't I control? Which I think is was a huge part of living in the Bay Area. I'm sure we'll get there, but so much of how people perceive you, especially in, in that's the city of San Francisco, is out of your control as a person of color. And so just becoming more comfortable with those middle spaces was super helpful for me. Okay, so the question is, what did I do after university, mm -hmm. but before I moved here? Mm -hmm. It's basically how between university and you moving here, yeah. one, your sense of identity evolved and your self-awareness mm -hmm. and probably how your project to move or move back evolved. Because I think that many times we see it as something that suddenly happens mm -hmm. and we decide, oh, that might be the time. But it's something that has been growing and growing. Totally. We just don't see the little different yeah. elements that bring us to that thing. Yeah. Hindsight 2020, I think, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, so, you know, there's obviously the, the narrative thread of trying to find myself. <laughs> All young millennials. I graduated from university and I think I was just so happy to find a job. I was in that headspace of finding stability and security and I didn't plan to stay in the Bay Area, but it just is how it ended up working out. And I was, I mean, yeah, this is not a podcast about San Francisco, but I was very enamored by <laughs> the experience of it as a young yeah, adult. Yeah, go, go into it. I think it's quite interesting. Okay. It's a fascinating place. I think at first glance, and this is often the, the narrative around it, it's super progressive really smart people solving really hard problems. And there's a lot of liberty offered around sexual freedom and identity, I think, as it's associated to maybe that bucket. And there's an energy that was really exciting as a young college graduate. What was your first job out of college? The year after my senior year, finished that master's program. And so I was living in San Francisco and commuting down to my university and also working part-time in the city for a small philanthropic advising nonprofit, which is bigger now, called GiveWell. And from there, I shifted to working for a design firm, which is still what I do now, in their social innovation portfolio. So thinking about how to use design innovation to influence social issues that are stickier. I'm quite interested in that portion of the first jobs, because they, they are quite defining in a yeah, way, yeah. Um, yeah. around your perspective of working and even the kind of what you wanted to do in life. What are some of the things what made you switch into the different areas? I think it's it, it's hard to live in San Francisco and not be drawn towards the tech industry. <laughs> and I think people who aren't are just so badass and it's really brave, but it's, it sucks you in. And I think yeah. there is a part of, so there's a few notes here. The first is that I grew up watching my dad do what I thought in my, in my youthful brain. And I think still was in retrospect, really incredible work or trying to do really incredible work in these interesting, <laughs> tough containers working through UN and the IMF. And so I always had in my head this idea of I'm for sure gonna work for the Foreign Service or that's gonna be my path. And then I became quite cynical about that in university, just I think classes, learning about how international aid systems work and how nuanced a lot of this actually is. And, and so there was a part of me, I think after university, was, what are the other ways that some of these social issues are addressed or understood and in the Bay Area it's very easy I think to gravitate towards tech as a potential a potential avenue and really quickly I realized it wasn't 
for me mm-hmm. and felt very dry. And that was kind of the impetus for me to to shift to the work I do now, which is an interesting intersection between consulting, which is very dry, and getting to work really closely with communities and support what they're doing in their local context. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, Emmy said it was definitely a slow burn for me. I think I was in the Bay Area total about 10 years. Probably wasn't until my sixth year that I started to kind of zoom out <laughs> and feel uncomfortable, which is maybe associated with growing self-awareness, uncomfortable about the homogeneity and the single story that I think exists um, in the spaces that I was spending time in. Maybe part of what was so jarring for me at that like sixth year point in San Francisco is that I didn't feel like I had a, a ton of peers that I resonated with laterally in that way, who were thinking about some of the things that felt really front of mind for me. And that felt a little lonely. And it's interesting to feel like here in Nairobi, there's an abundance of people who I feel I really connect with on that front. We just went through Alex's background. Coming up next, she tells us about how her growing self-awareness led her to move to Nairobi. So you moved within the same firm. So you were working for this firm back in the States and then you moved here. Was the decision intentional or was it just something that happened at some point and you were like, oh, maybe that's the time that I should raise my hand. It's a sign, I should definitely go. Yeah, no, Um, it was not intentional or clean. I wonder if my manager will ever listen to this podcast. <laughs> Love you, Jason. I think I made it was very complicated for a good six months. It was, I was very ready to leave the Bay Area for kind of the reasons that I've mentioned. And my company idea was starting to build out a portfolio of work in East Africa. And the work that I was focusing on was also beginning to overlap with that. So it was making sense, but there was no clear path or route. And it was kind of unprecedented, this idea of our entire team is based in San Francisco. What if we had a manager sitting in Nairobi? And so I kind of pitched it. And the pitch was that I was going no matter what, but I was happy to keep working and experimenting. And for whatever reason, he agreed, which bless his soul. But yeah, I just, I was ready for a change. And I think there was a part of me that felt it would be really wonderful to be back on the continent and that I'd grow and learn in really different ways, which is what I was looking for. And it sort of just worked out with work. <laughs> How did you pick Nairobi? How did you say, I'm moving there? And you know, this is perfect. No one's going to say no to Nairobi. Yeah. Well, did you do an extensive? I think that Nairobi is a really soft landing pad for people who haven't lived on the continent in a while to, mm-hmm. to live here and to understand what it means to be here. And so that was definitely front of mind for me is how do I make this transition, but do it in a way where I'll feel there's a bit of a buffer. And it was becoming, I mean, it is still becoming quite popular, like a hub for (laughs) repats, but also for all sorts of people. And (laughs) there there was a fair amount of my work that was overlapping with East Africa and Nairobi being the hub. So yeah, so not just there was kind of a strategic pitch behind it, but I think what was interesting in the wake was my decision to move was happening with or without work mm-hmm. so I think I have moments here alone <laughs> that was silly and kind of crazy of you but it ended up working out in a in a cool in a cool way and I don't know I'm just gonna ask this but what was 
in your gut what was because the process that you're in now did you proactively think about Africa being somewhere you would feel more comfortable? Yeah, a few things. I think the first is the second you decide to leave a place, you start to fall in love with it all over again. <laughs> so I had a four-month buffer between when I left San Francisco and when I decided I was going to leave and when I actually left. And there was a lot of panic in that period of time. Falling back in love with this thing that was finite and wasn't going to last and everything is so much more beautiful <laughs> if not your mundane day-to-day or you're about to lose it. So that was an interesting experience. and cool for my brain as an evolving adult to recognize that that's a thing that happens with people or places or experiences. I was very naive in assuming that moving to the continent or East Africa would solve a lot of the identity issues I was feeling in San Francisco around not being in spaces with other people that looked like me or understood my lived experience as a person of color. And yeah, that was, that was a big part of my narrative the past two years, the last two years I lived there. And yeah, and my head was like, oh, I'll move to the continent, and I'm African, and people will look at me and realize I'm African, and I think I just have this really interesting story in my head of it will feel so much easier and so much lighter, and what's challenging and really fascinating about Nairobi is I am still entirely other, but in a very different way. I think in the quote-unquote expat community, I still often feel other because it is quite homogenous in some ways, especially racially. And then alongside Kenyans, I'm very clearly not Kenyan or from here. And so that's an interesting identity check. Yeah, just different versions of mm-hmm. the same question. <laughs> and as you look back, is there one something that you wish you would have done differently or you would have prepared more for this move or for this transition. Is there a certain tip or anything that you would like to share with those future repats to say, look, as you're looking towards this thing, you should maybe consider this or take more time to explore X. I'd be curious to hear your guys' answers to this too. Yeah, I mentioned previously imposter syndrome. I think coming to Nairobi, I felt a ton of it of just, Alex, be very careful and very thoughtful about the spaces that you assume you have access to because you're part African or because for whatever reason. And so I was very hesitant, I think especially in building relationships with Kenyans or moving in spaces where in which everyone around me was very clearly Kenyan and I was not. And in retrospect, I think that's been to my detriment, that fear around, oh, it's kind of like the Black Student Union thing. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's a very similar foil. And in retrospect, I wish I had been a little, still incredibly respectful, but less hesitant um, about that imposter syndrome, because I think it it stops me from building maybe as deep of relationships with people who see Kenya and Arabia as their home. So I think that's a piece of advice of just tread carefully, but also be human and recognize that, yeah, your identity is a, is a huge thing, but also humans are humans and you can connect with them despite that. And I think this resonates a lot in the sense that we just need to be more confident mm. about our own voices and our own stories. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily because we don't fit in any of those boxes that our story is or our objectives are not relevant. Yeah but we might need to find the time to create this narrative and to think, okay, well, what I have to say, what I have to explore means a lot to me. Totally. And it's worth the time and it's worth sharing. Yeah. 
I love that articulation. And not being embarrassed about the fact like you're still figuring it out. Exactly. And yeah. it I think that when it is evolving, it's when there's the most value out of it. Because it shouldn't be something fixed, but it should be, as you mentioned before, very fluid. But yeah, Abby, could you tell us more about I think for me it's a bit different because I think when I left the continent I was in my early teens so I'd, and I've never really lived in Burundi so this ongoing sort of imposter syndrome of moving to other places where I somewhat look I'm from there not always <laughs> is sort of an ongoing debate but I've always felt really comfortable in a way to just mm. kind of move somewhere and just be like, I'm Burundian I'm not from here you deal with it <laughs> yeah yeah um, that's cool in, in, the most I felt most comfortable was actually in Kenya because people know where Burundi is. Honestly, not all of us do. <laughs> and two, I feel this feeling of just directly connecting with someone and you are a foreigner to them, but they're also a foreigner to mm -hmm. you and you guys are both okay about that. Yeah. Does break a lot of comfort when you accept that this person is as uncomfortable as you are yeah. in this particular situation. But also, you know, thinking, and I think this is, this is going to be very controversial in a way, but you are a different foreigner than a white expatriate at the end of the day. Yeah. You do have much more sensitivities around understanding the That's behavior right. of yeah. someone that lives on this continent. You know, someone who spends all their weekends with their family, for you that's not weird, yeah. but for a lot of other white expats that yeah, is. Yeah. And you, you are comfortable building relationships with people that you might not see on the weekends, you only see them at work, but mm -hmm. you still have the same trusted relationship. I think one of the things that you mentioned around that kind of a bit of a disappointment when you move here and you move back into expat circles. I it just made me think as well, you know, for me seeing my parents living across multiple countries in Africa, I can count on my hands how many local friends my parents have made in mm -hmm. each of those different countries. Mm -hmm. And it is also being okay with realizing that when you move into a country, yes, you will have some friends that are if if it's not your home country or yeah. your country of nationality. It is okay for you not to be incredibly embedded in that particular culture. Yeah. Just because, you know, these people that you're trying to befriend have lived a whole life, have families, have ch mm -hmm. childhood friends. Just like if you move to Sweden, you're not going to exactly. have totally, only totally. Swedish friends. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's totally okay for you to, you know, create your own comfort zone mm -hmm. as long as you're aware of that that is your comfort zone and not necessarily the reality that the majority of the people in the country that you're living in are yeah, experiencing. Totally. And I think that is, but I think the work to do as a repat as you're moving is to say, I need to understand how people are living here, but also accept that I'm not necessarily going to live this life or be part of this particular mm -hmm. sort of economic class. Yeah, and it might be inappropriate or presumptive of me to yeah. assume that there is space for me in the yeah. community, yeah. right? And yeah, I don't have much more than that, but I think it's really well said of the pressures to be Kenyan or to be whatever he yeah. is, is misplaced and in I some ways. I think there's something really interesting about this definition of repat and expat. Okay. So before the break, we <laughs> mentioned something about expat versus repat and I think it's an interesting perspective to take and maybe we should talk a little bit more about this but for instance in in my own experience in the beginning I thought that moving here was just going to be to be fully honest an experiment to validate some things that I needed to validate regarding my identity and now that it's been over a year I realized that it just feels very natural to be here mm. and 
there are actually not so many things that I miss about home or France or Mexico where I was before and it does impact a lot the way that I approach things and I just want to build things so I want to build relationships I want to build a career at work and yeah I think that's the main difference between the expat and repat definition and maybe what we will try to explore in this podcast why would you define yourself as a repat Alex yeah it, it's, it was beautiful to hear your articulation of me because it has a lot of emotion and lived experience to it for me it feels quite logical which is that part of my ancestry or immediate heritage is on the continent and I grew up on the continent and then left and after a series of experiences and decisions etc etc decided to come back and for me that is sort of the definition of a repat but there's much more to it than that I think you did a really good job of articulating that I don't know if it's as clear in my head yet yeah <laughs> Effie what about you? I think the cultural behavior and the way life works here is very much what I've been longing for and in a way it is a repatriation to my youth and growing up. I think the particular part where I do feel that I'm more than an expat is more that again as Amy said around building something and something that is really long term and something that I really at this point don't necessarily, and this at this point, talk to me in two years might be different, mm -hmm. but I do feel I'm really here to stay for the long term and this is a part of somewhere that I want to have as part of my identity going forward and even just my life and whatever the future holds. What kind of advice would you guys give to someone? My first six months here was high pitch, whether it was a high or a low. Yeah, I also think it's just, it's human nature to want to speed to the end point of an experience, especially if it's uncomfortable or jarring. And so I think there's this pressure of when is this going to feel home or comfortable or... And so I struggle to, to sit with the experience of just, you're in a new place, you know nothing about it, you're super out of sorts. There are amazing parts of that. There are also really hard parts of that. They can exist in tension and it's going to take time. And so I think a tip, and this is kind of fluffy, but it's just be compassionate and give yourself the space to move through those highs and lows and yeah. to not be at the end point of, like, ah, I know for sure it was the right choice to move here or I know for sure this is where I'm meant to be or whatever certainty you're trying to grasp onto. Yeah. I think that for me, the key word is patience mm. with other people and with yourself. So things, at least in Kenya, because this is the experience that I've had, take more time. Uh, the second thing would be to reflect a lot. And I think that we're not necessarily used to doing this. And the last thing is just to enjoy because in the end, everything is temporary. And this feeling of excitement and wanting to feel the rush and wanting to feel high all the time is really temporary. In the last few minutes, we discussed the subtlety of being a repat versus an expat in Kenya. In this last part, we discuss how her experience as a repat has impacted her and her relationship with her family. 
I'm kind of curious to hear more around your relationship with your parents.、Mm-hmm. Obviously, they lived as adults in, in Southern Africa. Have you felt there was a bit of change with, you know, especially your father、mm-hmm. around knowing him a bit more, the relationship that you had with him? And、yeah. also your mom as well around you know, her experiences here, especially on the rougher side、um, yeah. of the colony. Totally, yeah. I think I assumed that moving to East Africa would like, really bolster my relationship with this part of my heritage, and then by way of that, my dad. <laughs> and he's, he's so supportive, and also in some ways, just kind of like, cool. Cool, cool. Like, this isn't a huge joke. You're going, you're going to Africa, and this is the thing I do all the time, and this is where I grew up. And so it's funny, I think, humbling in some ways. My dad was just great. This isn't a huge deal. Yeah, what's ironic is I, I feel still quite removed from my Cameroonian heritage、mm-hmm. here in Nairobi. I don't necessarily feel moving here has given me so much more depth to that、mm-hmm. specific part of my identity. I think it has added to my identity in terms of how I associate with being from the continent more generally. And then with my mom, it's hilarious. It's given us definitely this new thing to bond over. But for someone who was so brave about her move to the continent,、mm-hmm. you know, had traveled to France, but that's it. Otherwise, had not really traveled outside of the US and just up and moved with my dad to Ethiopia and raised her kids here. Super brave and so cool. But she was quite nervous about me moving. And I think in some ways, was quite nervous about me being here and existing in these spaces. In a way that's surprising because she kind of did it herself、mm-hmm. in a different way, obviously. So, yeah, it's brought up different conversation starters and different ways of relating and bonding with my parents. But it's funny, my dad, especially, he's just like, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> Stay safe. <laughs> you said you've been here for what, two years, more or less?、Mm-hmm. One, what do you think you learned the most? What are the kind of key things you learned from a personal level, professional level,、mm-hmm. around your move? and... How are you using that going forward?、Mm, that's a good question. I think, on a personal level, my life here has been very independent in a way that I hadn't yet experienced in my adult life. For context, much of my early and mid 20s and later 20s, I was in quite serious relationships and moved here on my own. And since I've been here, I've not really been in any serious intimate relationships. And I think those two containers, I mention them because it just has been a forcing function of really learning how to spend a lot of my time alone and navigate difficult, challenging, confusing situations in a new place alone. And I think it's just been super cool to observe myself grow through that and recognize the ways in which that's actually been super beneficial to my self development. Work wise, Yeah, Emmy was mentioning this with just a lot of humility. <laughs> I know things, but in this context, there are moments when I know nothing. And how do I own that and not be embarrassed about that and also just be very open and curious to learning? Yeah, but I'd say most of my personal development since I've been here the past years has been around just learning how to exist in the world in a singular way and really appreciating solitude. Yeah. So, just to close on some of the topics we've talked about. Do you feel like you have more answers and do you feel more confident about the voice that you have and, and where you might belong、yeah. after this experience? Yeah, I think the stuff you were saying around recognizing your voice. 
for a myriad of reasons is unique and has value. It's something I've really grown into since I've been here. I also think I've gotten closer to really feeling emotionally resonant with this idea that identity is so central to especially people who fall into this repack category, but all of us, right? But in a lot of ways, it's these 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 words, this language we use to put ourselves in this container or that container or in between two containers is quite synthetic. And I mentioned this piece around fluidity and how learning to lean into fluidity has been very formative for me, but just being here for the past two years and, and falling into moments of feeling I'm having extreme imposter syndrome or don't know where I belong, et cetera, and, and coming out of those moments, I think has allowed me to feel even more certain that it's okay to exist <laughs> in the middle of, around all of these different identifiers and the identifiers sometimes don't even make sense. And it, we're also all just creating creating the containers. Yeah, so some growth, still some questions, feeling okay about that. Yeah. It's a great way to end. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. We're excited about this work. Great conversation. Thank you to Alex for sharing her story. Uh, and for agreeing to be the first guest on Repat Repat. If you've enjoyed this, um, please subscribe, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and share with those around you who might like this. Next time on Repat Repat, Emmy talks to Tayo Vioso, CEO of PAGA, about his journey from the US back to Nigeria, and what it is like to start a business as a Repat in Lagos. Mm-hmm.